Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. I'm so glad that you're here. And today we're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 30. Now, if this is your first video on this channel, um, this is not really representative of what most of the videos on this channel are about. Most of the videos on this channel are responses to atheist YouTubers or atheist intellectuals or atheist academics. There may be some overlap there um, and uh, debate reviews and things like that. But on this video, um, this is the, in the midst of a series that has currently 30 something hours uh, of content that you can access in a playlist on this channel. If you'll just go to youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter and uh, go to the playlists and you'll find the Genesis series. Also, you can get there by going to trinityradio.org and clicking on the verse by verse. So maybe this isn't the video you're looking for, but what we want to do here is I want to get people interested in apologetics and worldview discussions more interested in the Bible. And I want people who are interested in the Bible to learn some simple apologetics. So this is an audio commentary through the book of Genesis where every theological issue, everything that's up for debate, we go off on all of it and look at it from multiple different orthodox viewpoints and uh, also apologetic material when it's necessary in the book of Genesis. And there's a little bit of that in this uh, video. If you clicked this video because the thumbnail said something about a possibly unscientific uh, issue in this chapter of the Bible, um, we're going we're gonna to show that it is not or doesn't need to be taken as an unscientific perspective uh, presented by the Bible. So uh, we're going to get there, but this is a verse by verse, and I think that it'll be good for you. I think all Christians should go through the Bible in a verse by verse fashion if they can. So uh, we're going to jump right into this, and we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 30 and verse 1. And in the last video, you'll recall that we saw the how Jacob met his wives, Leah and Rachel, and how he his heart really thumps for Rachel, but uh, Leah, he was tricked by Laban into marrying Leah, and perhaps he should have been satisfied with Leah. That's my position, that Leah could have perhaps bore him all the children that uh, were to be born to Jacob, all the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, I, I think that the ideal is one man and one woman. Uh, that was a biblical truth far before it was a political position. And, uh, in, and, and I think that we see that the ideal is always what God wants and issues where there are, is poly polygamy in the Bible. It, it usually, if ever, it turns out, uh, in, uh, usually or never turns out good. It's almost always bad. And I think we see it causing all kinds of trouble in this passage. We looked at the time frames in the last chapter and how it's you have to figure out what's going on mathematically with the amount of time that Jacob and Leah and Rachel had to have these kids. And the way it looks on a cursory reading is that he worked seven years, got Leah. Then he was with Leah having children, worked seven years more to then get Rachel. But we presented the possibility that both of these wives were married at the beginning, even though Jacob was tricked. And then he just worked off his time that he owed to their father, Laban. Um, while he was uh, while he was having children, if he got both wives at the same time, then though the text reads like Leah had uh, Leah <laughs> Leah had all the, a Star Wars fan Leah had all these kids and then Rachel started up. They may have been bearing children at the same time, though uh, Leah got a head start. And so the text the text does that in the in the Bible. Though the last chapter that we looked at kind of tells you all the kids that Leah had. Uh, and then and then now we start off here and it's it's telling you it's backing up a little bit to tell you what's going on in the midst of that. Um, the Bible does that. There are places in the Bible in Genesis where even though these chapter headings and stuff weren't there and the chapters weren't divided like they are and all that sort of thing. 
Um, it, it ends one pericope or one section uh, telling you what happened with this whole person's life or with this whole event. And then in the next chapter, from our perspective, it backs up and starts somewhere in that time frame. So uh, we see that happening here. So, um, so the end of chapter 29 told us Leah had these kids, and now we're backing up a little bit and it's telling us what's going on uh, under a microscope, so sort of. So in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, because Rachel hadn't been producing, Jacob, uh, Leah was producing at least two, we think, by now. Uh, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She's, so, And then she's going to present her uh, handmaiden. But here's the thing. Think about what she's saying and Jacob's response. The Bible's realistic. This is a realistic response. This woman is very upset. Um, why am I not having children? And so she says to Jacob, basically, it's your fault. Give me children or else I die. And what's Jacob thinking? Um, what, how is this my fault? <laughs> right? I mean, maybe, maybe medically, but it doesn't seem that way because Leah's producing kids. So he says, am, am I God? Am I in the place of God who has withheld you the fruit of the womb? I mean, it's like, why are you blaming me, sister? This is not, not my fault. So she said, fine, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that, though, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife. Uh, so she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Now, she just uses the word, I mentioned this in the last chapter, she just uses the word Elohim for God here instead of Yahweh. Um, that's interesting because Leah typically uses Yahweh. Rachel typically uses Elohim, which is just a generic word for God. So it seems like Leah has totally bought in. This is my new husband. This is his God. This is the God that I'm going to worship. This is the God I'm going to pray to. This is the God I'm going to thank. Rachel, not so much. And in fact, there is evidence in uh, this segment of Genesis, this series of chapters, that perhaps Rachel has not become yet completely devoted to the God of her husband. She has not necessarily become as devoted to Yahweh as her sister Leah has. This is one of the reasons I presented in discussing the last chapter why maybe Jacob should have stuck with just Leah. Maybe that was God's choice, and perhaps this is one of the reasons. Spiritually, perhaps she is more mature, accepting that Jacob's God is going to be her God. Uh, but Rachel, we see her using the generic most of the time. And it's something interesting when she does use Yahweh. We're going to get to that. But most of the time she's using uh, Elohim, just a generic term for God. And, um, and we see later that she actually, when they leave, she steals her father Laban's household idols to other gods. She takes those with her. So it, it seems like not only is she, she's not so much just passively interested in religion where, okay, well, this God stuff, I'm going to pray and ask God to do whatever. No, she seems invested in the gods of her family. Uh, I hope that's not reading too much into it. I don't think it is, given the fact that she takes these idols from her household that represent the gods of her father. She seems to still be now torn between the gods of her father and the god of her new husband, Yahweh. 
And so that that seems to put her in a tough situation. And so this this we see evidence of this with her using the generic for God that you might not get just reading through in this in the English. Okay, uh, verse seven says Rachel's made Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a, a second son. So Rachel said, "With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed." And she named him Naphtali. Um, if the text isn't like if we if we just grant if we just say okay the text isn't giving us a chronology of births it could be that rachel i mean this is certainly the way it reads rachel sees leah have two kids and is bothered by this and drags out old poor old bilhah in a spirit of competition with her sister and that would make sense of this idea of wrestling that she talks about here i've wrestled with mighty wrestlings i have wrestled with my sister um, and it says when, in verse nine, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah, Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now she stops bearing, according to chapter 29, after, Leah does, after four sons. If you go back to the end of chapter 29, you'll see that. She has four sons that she stops bearing. So if you overlap these two accounts from the last chapter and this chapter, what you might get is something like she has two sons, then Rachel gets jealous and enlists Bilhah to have two sons during that same time. Uh, during that same time, Leah is having her second two sons. Then she can't bear anymore. So she enlists her handmaid. Two can play at this game, just like Rachel had enlisted her handmaid. So now Leah enlists her handmaiden, Zilpah, um, and, and, and tries to, you know, so there really is a wrestling here. There's a real competition. Now you might, and this is because of jealousy, obviously. Now you, you might say, well, hold on a second. How, why is God, why do we not get some commentary from God's perspective on this, that he's not pleased with this? Well, I think that this passage gives us that. This, that this is not good it, it, by illustrating what happened, this jealousy and this wrestling that is happening that clearly we, we wouldn't suspect that God is in favor of. And in fact, later law actually, um, later Mosaic law actually forbids this, the marrying of sisters. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18, uh, you can't marry two, one man can't marry two sisters. And there's obvious reasons for that. So we already, so what we have in the Mosaic law represented, I think, and many conservative theologians think about this, is that it's it, God kind of, you know, so the, the polygamy is taking place and God's not crazy about that. Like God, it's not that that's God's ideal, but given that it's happening, the laws do reflect the reality of polygamy, even though it's not the ideal. And um, but even in that situation that is not the ideal, we still want some things that prevent as much of the problematic relationships as we can. And so in Leviticus 18, 18, what we get is you can't marry two sisters. Why? Well, these women and I hope that this isn't viewed as a sexist comment. I don't view it as sexist. It's just the nature of reality. And I imagine it could certainly happen with men if if the roles were reversed here. But these, but any two women who ha are forced to share, share the, the same man are going to have a serious jealousy there about what's going on, especially if he seems to prefer one over the other. But now she's stuck here. And, um, even, and even if it doesn't involve the bearing of children. This is compounded when you take sisters, right? You shouldn't have that kind of upset feuding between sisters. Sisters should have a very close relationship as sisters. 
Um, so this is forbidden later, which seems to reflect that God didn't view this, even in Jacob's day, as a positive thing. Adding more ammo to the position that I hold that Jacob should have just stuck with Leah. That may have been what God wanted. Uh, but here, here it's happening. And, and, you know, it's interesting that God works in the midst of our plotting and our planning to try and we saw this with, with um, uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah at the time, Abram and Sarai. We saw it there. And we're seeing it now in the midst of things that are not the ideal, that we wouldn't think would be God's plan for things. He still is at work to make sure that his ultimate goals are met. And of course, that's what we want to what we want to uh, praise God for. So this is what's happening. And so we've got us we've got a possibility for how this is how this is playing out uh, in the midst of the uh, ordering of children and, and why it would exacerbate the jealousy that's that's going on all right verse 10 leah's made zilpah bore jacob a son then leah said how fortunate so she named him gad gad by the way means troop so the jealousy is in full force here this is the time in, in the midst of this that leah who mentions yahweh doesn't mention yahweh now it, it could be reading too much into that or it might not it might be that now she's caught up in the competition too. Leah is now caught up in her competition with her sister. And she names him Troop because it's like she's raising up her own army over against her sister's army. You know, this is my troop against your troop or something like that. Maybe not. Maybe that's reading too much into it. But we certainly see, I mean, you could call this chapter Desperate Housewives. I'm Look, I'm a dad now. My kids used to think that I was cool and my jokes were funny. Now I'm lame and my jokes are lame um and now i'm a weird dad that's how now that my daughter's 12 she's now the nine-year-old still thinks i'm cool and my jokes are funny but the 12 year old i'm doing the best i can but this may be a dumb dad joke a weird dad joke but you could title this chapter of the bible desperate housewives again no sexism involved there because if roles were reversed we might have desperate husbands desperate house husbands all right uh okay Let's let's move on to verse 12. Leah's made Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, this is, by the way, this is where it gets really interesting and, and kind of funny. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Uh, to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So he, notice what's going on here. Leah's son finds these mandrakes and brings them to Leah. That means they're Leah's mandrakes, okay, by family. And at this point, both Rachel and Leah are barren. That's if, if we're right about the chronology of this, and maybe even if we're wrong, they're both barren at this point. And mandrakes were thought to be kind of an aphrodisiac and something that would help with fertility. So this would be an incredibly, incredibly valuable commodity in this situation with these with these women. And so Leah's son goes out and he finds uh, this this place where some mandrakes are growing. And this is incredible because now maybe we can help out with this problem of barrenness. And uh, they belong to Leah because her son found them. But Rachel wants them. And Rachel is willing to go far to get these mandrakes so that she can bear children to Jacob. Verse 15, but she said to her, is it a small matter? So wait, let's go back. Now notice here, Rachel said, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah says, is it a small matter 
for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? Now, when you're pastoring a church, um, like I did two churches, uh, in my early twenties, you, you sometimes, unless you're just a real stiff, you sometimes might have a moment in front of the congregation where you're, you're preaching through, as I did through this text, I preached through Genesis verse by verse at, at Cornerstone Baptist Church in McMinnville, Tennessee. And, um, and you might say something and the crowd laughs when you didn't intend for them to laugh or you didn't intend for them to laugh as much as they did. And you lose control of the audience and of yourself because you can't stop laughing either. You ever been in a situation like that? I don't mind it so much because, look, church should be a place where the family can get together and and have some laughs occasionally. And so I I was preaching through this text and I had, of course, planned out stuff I wanted to say, but I wasn't like preaching from a manuscript. And when I came to this passage, I read this. Is it a small matter for you to take my husband and would you take my son's mandrakes also? And I looked at the crowd and it just came to me on the spot to say, and it's not really that funny, but I just said, you want to take my man and my mandrakes. And when I said that, <laughs> the crowd began to laugh and that laugh became cackles and reacting. I began to laugh and we couldn't pull it back together. You want to take my man and my mandrakes. Now, there was uh, a guy that was a friend of mine who's about my age in the audience, and this had happened before. And so something like this, you know, where the crowd started laughing and I started laughing. And so he said, look, when that happens, I'm impervious to this sort of thing. I'll just be sitting out there in the audience like this. And so when that happens, don't look at them. Just look at me. I'll be like this and you'll you'll be able to regain your composure and go on with your message. So you want to take my man and my man drinks and the crowd's lost it and I've lost it and we're laughing and I don't think I'm going to be able to bring this thing together. And so I look to him, where is he? Where is he? And I see him and he's like this. And when I see him sitting here like this and everyone else around him is laughing and crying and doubled over in the pew next to them and all that, it just makes it all the more funny the way he's sitting there. And so we went on laughing for quite a while, but eventually we pulled it back together. But that has really nothing to do with this verse by verse, except that I thought I should share it with you. So I hope it's been a blessing to you. It took my man and my mandrakes. So verse, uh, the next verse. So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So she's like, okay, I get it. You can have Jacob tonight in return for the mandrakes. Now, the way this looks, it looks like Jacob regularly slept with Rachel. I mean, that's the one, that's the wife that he really has got the hots for. This is his love of his life. And Leah is just, you know, something that came along with the process. He was tricked into Leah. And it seems like he only slept with Leah when she might be fertile and able to bear children. So, uh, so, so here, Rachel it's kind of weird that she's able to barter for Jacob for the mandrakes. It's like, I'll let you have Jacob for a night. If you give me these mandrakes, doesn't Jacob have a say in any of this? I mean, this is starting to feel a little prostitution like, right? I mean, this, this is odd. This is a weird thing. Why doesn't Jacob get a choice? In fact, verse 16 says, when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. 
She hired him. She hired him with mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. (laughs) Jacob's completely passive here. In fact, that's one of the problems with Jacob. Jacob should have been more active in trying to resolve this thing with the two sisters, trying to be a a source of leadership and wisdom, perhaps. but, but, But he seems completely passive. God gave heed, verse 17, God gave heed to Leah and uh, she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Ishakar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift now. My husband will dwell with me because I have bore him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. Now, Rachel uses the name Yahweh here, but some have suggested the possibility that she's kind of demanding Yahweh to give her another son. And that's why she calls him by name, not necessarily because she's full of worshipful awe at Yahweh. Perhaps she was, but it, it seemed, some have suggested this is like a demand. Now, Yahweh, you give me another son. And she does get one, and that's Benjamin, of course. That's going to happen in a later chapter. But she dies giving birth to Benjamin, which makes you think, well, maybe she should have been satisfied with what she had. Uh, again, that's, that's a theme. That's like a theme. If I'm right about that, that's like a theme in these two chapters. Just be satisfied with what you've got. Jacob should have been satisfied with Leah, perhaps. She should have been satisfied um, with Jacob here. I mean, with uh, Joseph here. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. So verse 25 says, Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away. Now here we get to this. Here we're going to get to this possible scientific inaccuracy in the Bible. Let's see. Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, if now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined. Notice that word divined. We're going to come back to that. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Now that word divined is is the word divination. And that was not something that was pleasing to God. Of course, we know that Laban is not, uh, you know, he's got these household idols and all these other things. Um, and so he's using occult practices to divine what's going to happen. And so that's, that's no good. Um, verse 28, he continued, name me your wages and I'll give it. But he said to him, you yourself know, this is Jacob, you yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my, um, when shall I provide uh, for my, my own household also? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me, let me pass through your entire flock today. Let me, let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. Now this is brilliant. I'm going to explain it in more detail in a moment. When you come concerning my wages 
every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Now, what Jacob is suggesting here is there's obviously a lack of trust between these two men. And so what Jacob is suggesting here is, let me go today through your flock. And instead of you paying me anything, what's going to happen is we'll go through the flock and let's separate out the ones that are uh, that are different in some obvious way. They're speckled or spotted or, or whatever. They're, they're in a minority because they have this weird pattern of, of fur. And we'll separate those out. And, and, and the ones that are born that way will be mine. And then that way, if there's a question about whether I've stolen anything from you, all we got to do is look at the flock. And, and if they're the normal colored ones, they're yours. If they've got this defect, so to speak, this, this abnormality, then they're mine. Um, and we can, you know, genetically, that'll be a dominant trait. Now, obviously, um, they, they didn't know, they didn't understand genetics like we understand it today, but uh, they did know what it was like to keep flocks and watch what happens with them producing. So just by observation, you don't have to know anything about uh, genetics to get that just by looking at observation, if you're a herdsman through your life, as Jacob was through most of his life and as Laban was, you would understand what happens, what seems to be dominant here. And so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's how we're going to keep this whole thing straight. Uh, verse 34, Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. So he removed, Laban removed on that day, the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, everyone with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So already Laban's augmenting what's going on here. But I, no, no, no. I'm, you said you were going to go through. I'm going to go through and do this. Um, all right. Verse 36. Now, here's, here's, watch what happens here. See if you can spot what starts to look weird, uh, what could be a scientific inaccuracy. That is not just what Jacob thinks, but seems to be what the Bible endorses. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. Now understand that what we have here is um, he has, it does mention that he's, uh, peeled white stripes in these rods. And so, and then he's put in front of these, you know, some, some of the flock are striped. Um, and you could, you could get the impression so that when they look at them in the water troughs and in the gutters while they're mating, that this, is, that Jacob thought, and perhaps the Bible endorses the notion that by looking at these striped rods, then that's what's, what's going to be produced is striped offspring with a striped pattern or something. Um, that, so that's, this is an unscientific idea. There's nothing that endorses that, but Jacob seems to think that at least that's what the suggestion is from Bible critics. Verse 40, <clears throat> Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, wherever the strong of the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. 
So people think that this reflects a backward superstition. And frankly, I have to say, I try to be honest with myself and honest with the text when I'm reading this. I want to know the truth. And um, the Bible is authoritative. If, if I couldn't resolve something and, and I came to believe that there was an error in the text, I'm, I wouldn't have cognitive dissonance about that. I would admit it. And I looked at this and I thought it on first blush, it does kind of seem like that. It seems like a backward superstition about these rods with these streaks or stripes in them. And, and, and that Jacob thought this. And of course, the Bible seems like it's endorsing that this is what's happening. And of course, the Bible would then be wrong scientifically that by taking a striped object and placing it in the sight line of one of these animals, that that's going to affect the offspring in some way. Uh, but as I've looked at this and, and listened to what others have said, I have genuinely come to believe there is another explanation and that this explanation is actually not possible, not even a possible explanation that it's this backward superstition. And it has to do with why Jacob actually would have put these striped rods in the water trough where these and in the gutters where these animals were going to drink and perhaps mate from. And uh, so, so what is that? Uh, well, notice that, that the rods have stripes, right? And he puts those in there. So on this theory of that this is a backward superstition that Bible critics would bring, Okay, you could say maybe the maybe these ancient peoples were thinking that if you looked at the striped rods, that that would explain the striped offspring. But where's the rods for the speckled offspring? Where's the rods for the black? You don't see that. And so the striped, this wouldn't even account for all the flock that we're trying to deal with. So that counts against this pretty strongly. Uh, secondly, it could well be that these now understand Jacob and, and Laban too, but Jacob had grown up in a, a herdsman family. He had been around this stuff and he was aware of the practices and it is extremely possible. And I think more plausible in this passage that notice what it says. It says that he, he pulled these stripes. I, mean, I realize that there is a parallel of the use stripes because it's a word in what he did with these rods and also that the striping of the, of the animals. But, but notice why he, Jacob took verse 37 says, Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them. Why exposing the white, which was in the rods. And he set the rods, which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, and the watering troughs. Now it, it, it seems to me much more likely that this um, guy who knows about herds and flocks is aware that, by peeling something open that these particular branches in his region may have had a sap in it or something that would that would serve as something that would help with fertility or something like that. And that legitimately could be true, scientifically speaking. Um, we know that saps and things like that can actually serve as, uh, you know, vitamins and things like that in, in the community uh, or in the in, in nature. So, so there's nothing wrong with that. But whatever you think about that suggestion, I think that's much more likely. So you've got the, that as a possibility and you've got the problem with, we don't have speckled and, and black. We just, it's the striped situation that we have going on with the rods. But then there's another problem, which is that if this is why, if this is how Jacob did this and he knew that's why he was doing it and that it worked, that makes no sense of what happens in the next chapter when Jacob seems to not know why this happened this way and has to learn through revelation that, it's actually that God did this for him. God produced his herds and his flocks. So the so that that first suggestion, this is a backward superstition, just doesn't seem to work. It's just not compelling. 
on first reading, I guess. But but when you look under the hood and look at what's really going on, it's not compelling. It doesn't make sense. And it even is impossible if Jacob didn't seem to understand why his flocks uh, grew the way that they did. And when you look on to see uh, in verse 40, where it says Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And as he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock, this is actually he the reason he separated them from Laban's flock was in order not to mingle the genetics again doesn't have to know anything about genetics to know what happens when you interbreed and so this was actually a courtesy to Laban he's just keeping them apart here so uh, I think that explains it in a way that is much more intellectually satisfying and makes sense in the context of the story and makes sense of what happens in the next chapter with this we are able to move past one of the more difficult sections in all of Genesis, to my mind, because uh, for me to teach through anyway, because you've got to deal with this whole complicated mess with the sons being born and the desperate housewives ordeal and what's going on with these flocks. Now we've got now we've made it to the point where Jacob and his new family are ready to leave Laban, though we're not at all entirely done with Laban. And we've got all but one of the 12 sons that will be the 12 tribes born to Jacob. We've also got Dinah, the daughter. So the story of God's promise is starting to kind of take shape in the book of Genesis. And what these two chapters really show is that even in the midst of our mistakes and meddling with God's plan that we saw even with Abram and, and Sarai, with Ishmael and that whole thing where we're trying to help with God's plans or work things out or have our own desires met in, in this passage as we have um, and and we, we would mess it all up on our own. God is wise enough to work in the midst of our meddling and in the midst of our mistakes to bring about his ultimate goals. And there's something comforting about that, to be sure, that God is in control. But there's also another side to that, which is think how much more peace, how much more peaceful it could have been for Rachel and for Leah and Jacob and for Laban if they had sought first and only what God wanted instead of their own desires. They might have thought, God might not give me what I want. But at the same time, it would have been a whole lot more peaceful for them. And it may have turned out that what they thought they wanted wasn't what they wanted to begin with. And with that, we'll come to the end of Genesis chapter 30. I hope this has been a blessing to you. And again, check out the rest of this series. You can go to the playlist at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter by looking at the playlists and look at the Genesis series there, or you can go to trinityradio.org and you can go to the verse by verse tab. Listen, I've enjoyed this time with you together. And uh, if you're interested in supporting what we're doing on this channel and responding to atheists and teaching the Bible in a way that is aware of the criticisms that come, you can help us financially at um, patreon.com slash trinityradio. And I would so appreciate that. But listen, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.